Well, what a great morning. God provided uh, beautiful weather. We don't have to swelter in here. It's especially good for the people in the gallery over there. They're right next to the donuts. Would you uh, pray with me first, Lord? God, we, we pray that our time of fellowship and worship today would be a sweet time for all. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be pure and honoring to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, as many of you know, uh, we've been covering the Beatitudes, and uh, a couple of the young men up here have some handouts. If you would like one, uh, your studies, go ahead and raise your hand, and we'll get them passed out now. Um, I apologize for the uh, busyness of this. The subject today is replete through Scripture, and uh, so there's a lot we can talk about, and, and we'll see how well we've whittled it down here. Um, in Philippians 3, Paul warns of the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. And of course, he's talking about worldly folks there. And their idea of long-term planning ends with their 401k and retirement plans, not Christians. Uh, the admissions committee of a Christian college interviewed applicants and they asked them all the same set of questions and got pretty much the same responses. They said, well, what will you do if you're admitted to this college? And the answer was, well, I'll get a degree. I said, well, what will you do with your degree? Well, I'll get a good job and I'll become wealthy. And say, so, well, what will you do after that? Well, I guess I'll enjoy retirement. And after that, no response into discussion. Uh, well, you know, you can imagine these are college kids and probably at some liberal college of, of the Christian faith, you know, but. What about us, those of the evangelical New Testament church who have believed in Christ and claim to have dedicated our lives to Him? Do our long-term plans and goals differ significantly from those of maybe typical college students today? What do we desire most of our lives? What are we living for? What's the most significant question of the Christian life, or of any life, in fact? Now, a few weeks ago, Mike taught about Paul's desire to please God as the primary goal in life as a Christian. Well, how do we please God? Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Isn't that it? The goal of the Christian life seems to me 
that we want to live our lives in such a way that we will see God. And if we see Him, that will open up all the blessings, not only for eternity, but also for the here and now. And the key is a pure heart. In fact, this is the most central and significant of all the Beatitudes of Matthew 5. You cannot be poor in spirit without a pure heart. You can't mourn for the things that displease God without a pure heart. You can't be meek. You can't hunger and thirst after righteousness. You can't be merciful. You can't be a peacemaker. You can't stand against persecution for the name of Christ without a pure heart. Actually, this is one of the most central principles in the whole of Scripture. The heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. Now, let's break the verse down a little bit. The word pure, pure in the verse, in the Greek is katharos, cleansed, spotless, free from filth or impurities. From this are English words cathartic, uh, a purgative for the purging and cleansing out, or catharsis, which is the process of purging the emotions or relieving emotional tensions, especially through tragedy, uh, the arts and tragedy and music. One question we want to deal with up front here is, can any person be completely pure in heart? And kind of a no-brainer in the absolute sense, absolutely not. You know, Romans 23, 3.23 tells us, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And Jeremiah 17, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can even know it? So, what's the purpose of this beatitude? This is not about perfectionism. This is not about self-righteousness. And it's not about claims of piety. Rather, this verse describes those genuine believers whose inner nature has been renovated, cleansed by the blood of the Lamb, and delivered from the guilt of sin. The practical effect is that the believer becomes more and more sensitive to sin, quick to discern the symptoms of impurity, and as a consequence, turns away from temptation quickly. Beyond that, the pure in heart will see themselves as ambassadors for Christ. And therefore, they'll have a compelling and growing desire to be led only in the righteous paths to avoid casting even a shadow upon the name of the God-man who bore their sins on the cross. The word heart uh, in the Greek is cardia, from which we get the word cardiac, like cardiac arrest, and from which forms the root of other words like the core or accord, meaning being of one heart, or the name of the town, concordia, which means with heart. Now, figuratively, uh, what this word means is the inward drives and motives the center of one's personality, the core values, if you will. The word heart does not merely mean the seat of affections and emotions, as we often we talk about matters of the heart being emotional. 
But this beatitude does not say that the Christian faith is something primarily emotional or primarily intellectual or primarily of the volition or will. The word heart in Scripture includes all three of those. When we say that a man has a brave heart or he has a good heart or he's got an evil heart, we're not saying that he's done a good thing here or a bad thing there. We're referring to his core character, his very essence or being, because that is the core of the man. We anticipate certain actions, reactions, responses, and conduct. And so if we look at the world around us, it seems clear to me anyway that there is a real problem with hearts. So, how do we clean up hearts? Perhaps through law. Perhaps Uncle Sam. Now think about this. In some segments of our society, almost 60% of the babies are born to unmarried moms. And only about a 1% of those are a place for adoption. Therefore, more than half of those kids are going to grow up in a home without a dad. The long-term effect of this, I mean, who can even imagine? I recently heard on the radio that the state of Tennessee, in the middle of the Bible Belt, now reports that for the first time in history, households with married couples is a minority, less than half in their state. And for Glenn Beck fans, uh, Dr. Keith Abloh recently co-authored a book with Beck. But it was oddly Dr. Abloh who published an article last month citing four reasons why marriage is a dying institution, which was really Abloh's reasons why marriage should die. And his basic argument was that people just aren't made to get along for a lifetime or to stay in love for that long. And he believes that the only role the government should play should be to enforce the obligation of parents to financially support their children, Uh, presumably because that's the only thing he thinks children need. Well, what can law do? Think about it. Well, I think it does something. So we worked for the passage of an amendment to the Kansas Constitution to define marriage. I believe government run by what the Bible calls ministers of God for good plays a vital role because our laws will always support and encourage one worldview or another. The more closely our laws mirror biblical principles, the better off both believers and unbelievers are going to be. Now, on the issue of marriage, on the one hand, homosexuals are just like any other sinners. We should reach out to them with love of the truthful kind. On the other hand, this is not just an unimportant matter of live and let live in our country. You know, God destroyed Sodom for a reason. From a different perspective, changing course here altogether, today's geopolitical dichotomy is between our form of republican government and tyrannical rule under the laws of Islam. 
Now, why are people in the Muslim world rebelling against their leaders? You know, I'm not really sure what's going on. But could it be that they are now comparing their lives with ours as revealed through the Internet? Do you think? It is only because of the Judeo-Christian foundations of our government that we have the freedoms of worship and speech, that women in our culture are highly valued, that monogamy is the rule, and that we don't allow any man or woman to be above the law. Under government with Muslim foundations, in practice, they have none of those core values. Now, I don't believe we should ever have a state religion. And, but anybody who believes that there is such a thing as a secular government is simply naive. There really is only less obvious referral to one's presuppositions, uh, hidden worldviews, and faith. Uh, rest assured, our president has a faith, and it, it influences his rule. Obviously, foundational core values of a nation affect how a nation functions. So, as believers who care about our nation, we should never give up on trying to install laws that are consistent with biblical principles. However, despite the importance of the rule of law and its foundations, and the standard it sets for society, on the individual level, government and law cannot force the heart to be good. Clearly, while our Christian foundation has made our lives infinitely better than other nations, it has not spared this nation from rampant evil and sin. That's why this group and other groups, the body of Christ, is vital to our nation. Both Peter and Paul refer to the church, to the body of Christ, as an edifice, a structure made up of what Peter calls living stones. And each of these stones has a heart. And to the extent that the individual hearts are pure, the body will be pure. And that sets a standard for the whole community, which sets a standard for the nation, which sets a standard, frankly, for the world. As an aside here, I was about 1978, and I was uh, on a NATO cruise, and uh, we took liberty in a Swedish port. And walking around, I saw... Uh, on a movie marquee, that great Scandinavian classic, Greece. And I thought, I was befuddled. How could this flick about 1950s Americana be relevant to the Swedes? But the Swedish soldiers with us said, oh yeah, anything from the USA is the rage here. I mean, we just have to understand our position in the world. But as an example of the importance of the church to society in our country is our own Dodge City, Kansas, where Christy and I were last week. Along the new Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe Railroad line, this frontier town was a destination for the huge cattle drives from southern Texas in the 1860s and 70s. 
And cowboys would spend several weeks and even months on the trail in hard, dirty, dangerous work. Upon arrival in Dodge City, they got paid, and the local economy was economy was built around dislodging those earnings from the cowboys, primarily through gambling, liquor, and prostitution. Now, this cocktail of rough cowboys, gamblers, railroad men, buffalo hunters, dancehall girls, and businessmen motivated primarily by lust and greed was so explosive it took equally rough lawmen like Wyatt Earp and Bat Masterson gamblers and rogues on their own at times, to keep relative peace and just a little law in order. But this was truly the wild, wild west, and sin abounded. Many a minister of the gospel came to town with good intentions, but were run out either at the end of a gun or after the help of a good tar and feathering. But in 1877, the right reverend Ormond Wright checked in to a local hotel with a determined attitude. It just so happened that a prostitute had been killed in a saloon brawl, and a delegation of dismayed and drunken cowboys came to the hotel and roused up the new preacher from his bed. They told him what had happened, and they asked him to give the girl a Christian burial. Reverend Wright responded differently than his unsuccessful predecessors. Predecessors, He officiated with compassion over the girl's funeral and read the account of Jesus' tenderness over the woman caught in adultery. And God used his act of kindness and compassion to establish a rapport with the rough citizens of the town. That, in turn, led to church services at the local saloons and finally establishment of several other churches in the community. And as you go through the history of Dodge City there in their museum, you can see they give credit to the establishment of those churches for cleaning up not just the image, but the core values of what had become known as the wickedest little town in the West. Now, unfortunately, the example that America is setting today for the rest of the world is again one of greed and lust. To paraphrase historian Alexis de Tocqueville, if America is ever to be great again, America must once again become good. But this all starts in the hearts of believers. You see, children born out of wedlock are a result of sins called fornication and sometimes adultery. Marriage breakups start with usually infidelity and or lack of forgiveness of some sort. Murder and other violence start with anger, greed, envy, or some other problem of the heart. If people were only pure in heart, they would be blessed. Their society would be blessed. And the impotence of the state to deal with the inner collapse of our culture would be replaced by the power of purity. Frankly, although I believe it would happen, the purpose of this beatitude is not to solve contemporary problems, 
Blessed are the pure in heart, Jesus says, not so that the government may be saved billions in welfare payments. The fundamental problem we have in American society is that we attempt to solve problems while neglecting the core issue of impure hearts. And naturally, we are so overwhelmed with human tragedies uh, like poverty and crime and abuse and neglect, man's inhumanity to man, that we're tempted to agree with the world that it's just wishful thinking to be even concerned about seeing God. But that's the greatest mistake of all. That in seeking to relieve these temporal miseries of man, we set aside the centrality of God in all of life. Blessed are the the pure in heart, not first because they change society, but because they see God. Seeing God is the great goal of being pure. Abandon that goal, and human society quickly degenerates. Now, it's clear in Scripture that Jesus is concerned not so much about the outside, but more about the inside. In Matthew 23, he confronted the scribes and Pharisees and said, Hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the outside of the club cup and the dish so that the outside of it may be the inside of it I'm sorry so that the outside of it may become clean also so the aim of Christ is not to make just make us nicer more attractive not to make us outwardly compliant so much as it is to change the hearts of sinners like you and me uh, would we have a stronger a better culture if there was no murder or adultery sure But did Jesus tell us only to seek a society in which there were no acts of murder or adultery? Well, a little later in Matthew 5, it says this, You have heard that it was said, You shall not murder. And anyone who murders is in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you that anyone who looks upon a woman to lust after her, I'm sorry, anyone who is angry with his brother has committed is, is in danger of judgment. And then in uh, verse 27, you have heard it has been said that anyone, uh, you shall not commit adultery, but I say unto you that everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adult- adultery with her already in his heart. You see, the heart is what you are at your core, your hidden thoughts, your feelings, which really only God knows. And what you are at the invisible root matters as much to God as what you are at the visible branch. Man looks on the outside, but God looks on the heart. And from the heart comes all the issues of life. In Matthew 15, verse 18, Jesus said, But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, slanders. These are the things that defile the man. So to Jesus, the heart is the main thing. What we are in the deep, private recesses of our lives is what he cares about most. Jesus did not come into the world simply to rid us of bad habits. Rather, because we have dirty hearts that need to be purified. What does it mean to be pure in heart? The closest Old Testament 
passage to this uh, parallel to uh, the Beatitude is Psalm 24, 3 and 4. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. And you can see what David means by a pure heart. It is one that has nothing to do with falsehood. It is painstakingly truthful and free from deception. A related virtue is sincerity. 1 Peter 1, 22, Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. The word sincere comes from the Latin sine, meaning without, and sere, which means wax, from which we get the word ceremony, you know, with candles. Uh, So when you sign a letter uh, under the word sincerely, you are literally saying without wax. Uh, In the ancient world, uh, when they made pottery, sometimes they had cracks. And so to cover those up, to smooth them over, they would fill in with wax, much like we would use caulk when we scrape old houses and paint them, which I'm an expert at. Uh, And the purpose, of course, would be to fetch a better price for the pot. But when the pottery was subjected to just about any heat, maybe even direct sunlight, the deception would become real to the buyer. And so a really good quality pot without cracks, was therefore sine sere or sincere. Insincerity or deceit is what you do when you will two things. When you will to do one thing and you will to have people think you're doing another. When you will to feel one thing but you will that others think you're feeling something else. Purity of heart is to will just one thing, to see God and know His truth. You can see this idea of purity in James 4, where it says in verse 8, Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded men. Notice both David and James refer to clean hands and a pure heart as preparation for drawing near to God. But notice how these people are described who need to purify their hearts. They are men of double minds. That is, that is, they are men who will two things rather than just one. Uh, This impurity of double-mindedness is explained in the earlier verse in chapter 4, verse 4. Unfaithful creatures, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So the double-minded man has a heart divided between world and God, kind of like having a husband and a boyfriend at the same time. Purity of heart, on the other hand, is to will one thing, full fidelity to God. Jesus explains purity of heart in a very simple phrase in Matthew 22. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Not with part of the heart. 
not with a double heart, not with a divided heart. That's impurity. A pure heart means no deception, no double-mindedness, no divided allegiance. Paul tells Timothy that the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So the aim of a pure heart is to align itself with the truth of God and magnify the worth, the value of God. If you want to be pure in heart, pursue God with complete and utter single-mindedness. Now, what's this about seeing God? What does that mean? I'm going to suggest a few things here. First, I think it means to be admitted to His presence. To see God means, uh, after, excuse me, after the plague of darkness on Egypt, Pharaoh exploded to Moses when he said, Get away from me. Take heed to yourself. Never see my face again, for in the day you see my face, you shall die. And Moses responded, As you wish, I will not see your face again. You see, when a king says, You will never see my face again, he's really saying, I will never allow you in my presence again. And so the first thing that seeing God means is being admitted to his presence. I think it also means to behold his glory now and forever. You see, seeing God means experiencing his holiness now. After God confronted Job in the whirlwind, Job said, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And in John 14, Jesus said this to his disciples, After a little while, the world will no longer see me. But you see me. You see, the world sees with physical eyes, but the pure in heart have the special privilege of seeing with spiritual eyes. Seeing God in our lifetime is the inward sight of intimate fellowship with Christ because the heart, the inward man, is at peace, is in accord with Him. It is desiring and understanding His will, which gives purpose to our lives. It's the ability to fit life into meaningful patterns. It is the sensing His acceptance and comprehending what it means to be forgiven. Now, unbelievers miss this reality of God. 3 John 11 says, Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. The pure in heart are aware of the reality of God because they are sure of God. They're conscious of His leading in their lives, even in the midst of pain and suffering and disappointment when others are despairing and in disappointment and rebelling in chaos and confusion. Our spiritual sight in this life comes to us through the Word of God and the work of God in providence. We see images and reflections of His glory around us. We hear echoes and reverberations of His voice. But then again, there will come a day when His glory will no longer be inferred from lightning and thunder and mountains and roaring seas and 
the constellations, the, the multitude of stars. Instead, you and I, as believers, will stare God in the face. David said in Psalm 17, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. And Paul alludes to this same future seeing when he said in 1 Corinthians 13, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. I think seeing God also means to be comforted by His grace. Again and again, the the psalmists cry out to God that He not hide His face from them. Psalm 27, David says, Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me. Answer me. Hide not your face from me. This means that seeing the face of God is considered to be a sweet and comforting experience. So when Jesus promises the reward of seeing God, it's implied that one will be admitted to his presence, not just kept in the waiting room. We will see and experience God now and thereafter with a direct experience of his glory. And finally, we will be helped and comforted by his grace if, if we have a pure heart. What's the relationship between a pure heart and seeing God? Well, plainly, it seems that purity is a prerequisite to seeing God. The impure are not granted admission to his presence. They don't behold his glory, nor are they comforted by his grace. In Hebrews 12, it says, Strive for the holiness without which no one will see God. In other words, blessed are the holy, for they shall see God. There is a real purity and a real holiness which fits us to see the King of glory. And of course, that leaves any of us, all of us, with any kind of sensitivity to cry out for ourselves as, they do, as it does in Proverbs 20. Who can say, I have made my heart clean, that I am pure from sin? And Jesus answers that question in Matthew 19. With men, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. In other words, God creates in us at salvation a purity and a desire to pursue more purity. And by his grace, we must seek that gift by praying with David. Create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit with me. And we must look to Christ who gave himself for us to purify himself a people. The response of our hearts to God's act of creation and Christ's act of sacrifice is single-minded faith in Christ as our Lord and Savior. As Acts 15 says, God made no distinction between us, referring to the Jews and the Gentiles, and them, but purified their hearts by faith. God is the one who purifies the heart. And the instrument with which he cleans it is simply faith. Therefore, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Will this one thing, and you will see God. Now, practically speaking, what does this mean? Purity is vital on several levels. You know, it's beyond debate that 
any impurity we put into our bodies will cause our bodies, if not serious disease, probably slow debilitation or degeneration. Do you see your body as a temple entrusted to you by God to be used as a life serving Him effectively with energy? Another thing that's obvious to us today is impure images and even sounds corrupt the mind and eventually ruin lives. You know, while women are not immune, guys, this is especially true of us. You know, porn is one of the largest industries in the world. Why? It's a common axiom that skin sells. Why? Do we, followers of the pure Christ, allow any pictures or even music or sounds from any media to take our minds to places they should not be? Are you being faithful in truth to your life partner, even in your mind, including young people, future partners, even unknown partners? Now, these impurities are obvious. What about the more subtle impurities of life? Deception, bitterness, anger, envy, greed, the big one, pride. Now, these are all conditions of the heart, our core, and they take us away from the only source of true and infinite love that we have. We all need to take an honest assessment of the condition of our hearts individually. If you and I truly want to see God, we will seriously seek purity in our hearts. I'm not sure what God is trying to say to me. Uh, Recently, I've had several situations that remind me that life is is a vapor, and we have no claim on tomorrow. I recently went before a judge who uh, used to be an attorney about my age, and uh, I've worked with him, great guy, and a few years ago, his wife just suddenly died without explanation. I hadn't seen him for a while, and I was there, and I noticed he couldn't use one hand even to sign uh, the papers. So after the hearing, I went up and I asked him, and he quietly admitted to me that he had just been diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease, which means, as I understand it, he will gradually lose control of all of his muscles. Yesterday, a client who's a pastor who adopted a baby just last Wednesday called me to tell me that their baby had just died in in his sleep a few hours before. A couple of weeks ago, We were celebrating our son David's graduation at our home. And later that same night, a young man just two doors down from us, who used to play with David, and who graduated as well, crashed into a tree and died. Now that made me appreciate so much that, at least today, I still can enjoy my son. None of us, none of us truly know how long we have left. Perhaps that's reason enough 
to become more serious about our relationship with our Lord, to purify our hearts, that we, we might see Him now and forevermore. Lord God, Your Word says that it is like silver, purified by fire seven times. Our hearts will never be as pure as Your Word. But Lord, Lord, bring us closer to Your purity. Even if it means the fire of adversity or shame and repentance. Lord God, thank You. Thank You for the hearts of these saints who I sense truly desire purity in their hearts. Thank you, Father, for the example of Jesus Christ who you sent to us to give us everything we need. We ask all these things in the precious and holy name of that precious Son. Amen.